Good afternoon, everybody. This is another edition of the Passball Show brought to you by St. Alvarez Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey by Two Ways. One Passion Food Truck located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Ready to speak with you about everything going on in the world of baseball sports and unifying America as we got the cuckoo clock playing the whole thing. So I guess we'll call this the opening point of the Passball Show today. I was thinking about a couple different things that we've been going back and forth with on Twitter. Now, now we got a lot of different fans of different teams that are interested in team previews. So we'll get into that. Uh, we do have the 31 MLB countdown previews up on JohnPielli.com. And uh, to me, in all honesty, when it comes to baseball in the 2020 season, I'm not really predicting that we're going to get shocked here. I don't think that there's going to be that underdog team. We're not going to have a Rays Athletics ALCS. I'm sorry. We're not going to have you know, the Pirates Padres battling it out to get to the World Series in the National League. I think a lot of it's going to have to do with the heavyweights, the big teams in Major League Baseball, the big spending teams. And as I've spoken about and mentioned on the last show, a team that a lot of people are writing off – very easily and for reasons that may not be baseball related. In other words, you could say, hey, cheating in baseball with the Houston Astros. Yes, that's baseball related, but some people are starting to judge what they expect out of the Houston Astros based off of how they feel about it. You know, listen, if you're not a Houston Astros fan, odds are you probably hate the Houston Astros. You're probably pretty pissed off at what the Houston Astros did. And maybe when it comes down to it, you could say they got away with in a 2017 season and maybe later. But to me, there's no reason to judge that team. Yes, you could be pissed at them. You could call them every name in a book, but then you go out there and just say, oh, well, they're going to be the last place in the American League West. It just sounds like you're angry. That sounds like you're a bitter fan and you're not even evaluating the talent that's on the field. The Astros, long before they started tapping the trash cans and maybe using, you know, whatever electronics that they did to give themselves a distinct advantage, maybe one that is not quantifiable to a point where you could say this is exactly how many more hits, how many more home runs, how many more wins the Houston Astros got themselves. But we knew we know that it gave them an unfair advantage. What we don't know is how widespread through the sport the use of, you know, television monitors and other technology is used throughout the sport. If we find out down the road that not only were other teams doing it, but other teams could have been doing it at just as much of a level or maybe even more high-tech than the Houston Astros, then where's the victim? And once again, the only person that's a victim is that person that has nothing to do with baseball, a person that is thousands of miles away in the virtual world of being a Major League Baseball player, having anything to do with Major League Baseball, they seem they're, like they're the ones that are most butthurt. They seem like they're the ones that are the angriest and have shown the most vitriol. But we will talk a little bit about the Yankees, a little bit about the Dodgers later on in the program. I had a mention about uh, Mika Zibanejad's five-goal game for the New York Rangers. Exciting time. Something you don't see that much in the NHL, but it did happen a couple years ago. Uh, was it Patrick Kane, I believe, was the last one to do it. Um, we look at, and it's funny, we, we're trying to mention what we think 
when we believe or remember five goal games in hockey. And listen, I look at four goal games and I think that that is outstanding. You know, you've seen hundreds and hundreds of times in the history of the National Hockey League that there's been four goal games. But right now, it's not as common. So somebody does that, it's a big story. So I understand why it is a big story for an NHL player to get five goals in a game, especially the way that this young man ended up doing it. He gets the game-tying goal to tie it at 3-3 three, three three or 4-4 four to four or whatever. Then he gets the next goal to put them ahead 5-4. to four. And then after the game is tied, he gets a breakaway goal in overtime to win the game and score his fifth. If you're a New York Rangers fan, it's got to be one of the more exciting things to see. And obviously, you're looking at a franchise that has been rebuilding the last couple years, is looking to get better, has brought in a lot of good young players, and looks to be headed in the right direction. So it's a great moment for the New York Rangers. But I do think that casual, non-diehard hockey fan, which I am kind of, I'm not going to say that I'm the biggest hockey fan in the world, but you know that casual hockey fan, is probably overrating five goals in a game because you know you look at the amount of times in NHL history that five goals have been scored and you're looking at a number like 47 or 48 times. Now I understand a lot of it happened early on in the 1920s and the inception of the NHL where maybe there were you know rules that allowed certain players to dominate the ice. And changes to the game, as you've seen over the last 20, 30 years, have made it very difficult for one player to control the ice. I mean, go back to the 80s and guys like Wayne Gretzky and Mario Lemieux, there aren't that many scorers in the National Hockey League that are putting up points like those guys did. There's nobody that's approaching Wayne Gretzky's goal and assist records in the National Hockey League. And part of it was probably a more wide open way of play during Gretzky's career. But the fact that Gretzky was by far the greatest hockey player that we've ever seen. You hear discussion in baseball about Mike Trout and where he ranks or where he should rank when it comes to the best baseball players ever. If Babe Ruth, who's considered the best baseball player ever, was playing today, would he be Babe Ruth? Would he be as dominant? Would he be heads and shoulders above the rest of the competition? You can say probably not. But it doesn't mean that Babe Ruth wouldn't be good. But you look at Wayne Gretzky and you look at even the best players in the National Hockey League right now, the Alex Ovechkins, the Sidney Crosbys. Yes, they're on their way to the Hockey Hall of Fame, but they're not going to do what Wayne Gretzky did. And if you look back at the history of hockey, I mean, there are there, there was a player that got seven goals in a game. There's been seven players in NHL history that have had six goals in a game. So like I said... You know, Zabander Jeb of the Rangers, great job, five goals, something we hadn't seen since Patrick Kane in, you know, 2018, something you haven't seen in the National Hockey League that often, but it, it's been done 47 times. It's been done twice as many times as there's been a perfect game in Major League Baseball. And that's why that is something that's certainly more sacred. You know, how many times has somebody in the NFL gotten Five touchdowns in a game. Five touchdowns in a National Football League game would be a lot more valuable than five goals in a National Hockey League. 
This copyright and broadcast is authorized under internet rights granted by the World Wide Web and is solely for entertainment of our audience. Any publication, reproduction, or other use of the pictures, descriptions, and accounts of this show without the express written consent of the Passball Show, JohnPielli.com and JohnPielli LLC, is prohibited. Any commercial that use the program, such as by charge and admission for its showing, is similarly prohibited. So, you know, I've been following over the last couple of years and really since last season when it was announced that Trent Williams, the offensive lineman, one of the best, one of the top tackles in the entire National Football League, has, has had a very good career, obviously signed a very big extension to be a, a franchise player for the Washington Redskins, ends up stepping away, refusing to play for the Redskins last year after a misdiagnosis of something that resulted, a, a growth that ended up being cancerous, which his private doctors ended up finding and determining it to be life-threatening. So this was not a Le'Veon Bell situation. This was not, you know, a you know the weirdness by Antonio Brown just making it difficult for whether it was the Steelers or the Raiders or the Patriots or anybody that he was employed to. Like I said, this wasn't Le'Veon Bell saying, you know what, I want to get paid more money. I'm not going to get paid that money, so I'm going to sit out the season. Trent Williams, yes, it doesn't look good anytime a player in any sport is being paid, is under contract, and decides that they're not going to play. But obviously, it's a little more of a tricky situation because it involves something that is life-threatening and something that the Washington Redskins obviously missed. And I'm using the most polite words that I possibly can by saying they missed this. This is negligent on their part. This is really bad. The fact that they have doctors that diagnosed something about, what, three, four years ago, and they didn't get it right. And the fact that this guy has got a cancerous or had a cancerous growth removed from his head, and the team was not able to diagnose that, if I'm that player, I'm not going to want to play for that team. And hopefully Trent Williams earned his salary, the amount of money that he was going to be paid in a situation like this. And I get it. It's tough for the Redskins because now they have all this extra money that's hit hitting them on a salary cap for a player that's not playing. But they're the ones that screwed up here. They're the ones that are, are borderline criminal in a way they handle this thing. And I'm sorry, there's some things when it comes to a diagnosis you know, you talk about a second opinion, sure, but you can't miss cancer. I'm sorry. If you are a doctor, whether you work for a team, whether you work for a huge medical practice, and there's a cancerous growth that somebody has and you miss that, that that's horrible. That's as bad of a job as you're ever going to do. So Trent Williams, who didn't play last year, and, you know, it's pretty much understandable why he chose not to play for the Washington Redskins last year. Now he's in a position where the Redskins, yes, they're trying to trade him. But now, you know, you have to make sure that he is given that full bill of health. Well, with doctors, by the way, how much are you trusting the Redskins doctors now? If you're Trent Williams and the Redskins are like, yeah, let's say examine you to see where you're at before we trade you. Let's give you a full or a clean bill of health before we trade you. Number one, if you're the other team, you're like, you know, these are the same doctors that didn't that misdiagnosed something that turned out to be cancer. That's like the the sin of all sins. 
That's like malpractice out of all malpractice. It's just something that should not have happened. And you look at a guy that, you know, has had a very good career, is probably looking for phase two of his National Football League career, is probably going to have to trust his doctors over that of the Washington Redskins doctors. And if you're giving him a physical, if you're the Redskins giving him a physical, you look pretty silly. You know, how could your doctors be trusted after you didn't diagnose something that turned out to be cancer? So was thinking about this the other day and you know we we get a lot of very good feedback in regards to things going on in a show people ask questions yeah somebody had a question about zach wheeler and i i really believe that zach wheeler if he does very well over the next five seasons his contract with the philadelphia phillies him and patrick corbin may set the new market over how a pitcher is going to be paid you look at a guy like trevor bauer who's getting set for free agency. Marcus Stroman will be a free agent at the end of this year. And, you know, the, the, the precedence has been set that these guys don't want those extensions. They want to be the top free agent on the market in a free agent system we know in Major League Baseball has certainly had some ups and downs. Last year, or this past year, looked like the free agents did well. And obviously the top free agents were, were pretty strong. Garrett Cole, Anthony Rendon, Steven Strasburg, they all ended up getting paid pretty well. You look at guys like Bryce Harper and Manny Machado last offseason, they were the elite of the elite. They ended up getting their money, but they had to wait for it. So you have seen you know a little bit of a change. There's not that guarantee that every single star player that hits free agency is going to get the type of, of, of buck or coin that they're looking for. So you think of starting pitchers and the value of starting pitchers, which I believe has changed over the last couple seasons. And you've seen the use of teams going to the bullpen mentality, bullpenning, using openers to start games, going to entire bullpen games, pulling starters after three, four innings, certainly in the playoffs. You've seen the, what do you call it, the, uh, the, length or the uh, amount of stamina for pitchers not being that long and a hook being very quick when it comes to managers in the postseason. So when you are compensating pitchers to get you seven, eight, nine innings, you're not seeing that anymore. And I'm wondering how that's going to impact this generation of pitchers. And I look at two guys and Patrick Corbin and Zach Wheeler, uh, I don't, think they have very many complete games between the two of them. And I'll, I'll pull it up as I'm talking. I can't walk and chew gum at the same time. I definitely know I can't look up stats and speak at the same time, but I'm going to try. But you're looking at pitchers in Corbin and Wheeler that are not known to be guys that are going nine innings. In fact, Patrick Corbin in his entire Major League Baseball career has pitched five complete games. Three of them were in 2013 with the Arizona Diamondbacks before he had Tommy John surgery. He's thrown a complete game shutout, one, in each of the past two seasons. So you you look at him and then you look at Zach Wheeler, and these are guys that are going to be amongst, at least for a little while, the, the highest paid pitchers, the highest paid starting pitchers in all of Major League Baseball. Now, I see the similarity between Wheeler and between Corbin. 
They both had similar careers. They both had seasons lost because of Tommy John surgery. And they both had very strong showings as they got towards their last couple years of free agency. Zach Wheeler in his entire career has one complete game shutout. That was in 2014 before he had Tommy John surgery. So you're looking at basically two pitchers that aren't going to be asked to go nine innings unless they are, are working on something special, unless they are borderline throwing a no-hitter or a perfect game. Odds are they're not going to see the eighth or the ninth inning anymore. So when is it going to – where we going to see a difference in the compensation when it comes to starting pitchers? You're already starting to see reliever salaries go up. You're already starting to see relievers get the qualifying offer in regards to Major League Baseball and free agency. 17 or 18 million for one year for a relief pitcher is not that much anymore. Now, it may be overpaid for a reliever for what they do. The fact that very few of them will go more than one inning. There's only a couple of Josh haters in Major League Baseball that are able to, on a week in and week out basis, go, you know, that second inning, you know, Seth Lugo does it with the Mets. There's a couple other pitchers in baseball that have been able to go out there and pitch that second inning or pitch the seventh and eighth inning or pitch the eighth and ninth inning. But you're talking about $17 million, and I don't want to sound like a boomer, but that is a lot for a relief pitcher. That is a lot for somebody that very seldom is going to go more than one inning. So what's the value of the starting pitcher? If a reliever, a top reliever, an elite reliever is making $17, $18 million a year, does that mean that that elite starting pitcher is worth up to 40 And once again, I have an issue identifying what the proper compensation is for a star pitcher right now. Because it's a shame you look at the guys like Tom Seaver and Steve Carlton, and obviously go back to generations before that. You're talking about the Bob Gibsons and the Juan Marichals and the Sandy Koufaxes. I mean, they're, they're, it's impossible to talk about how how great a pitcher that pitched past 1980 can be in comparison to Sandy Koufax because he pitched nine innings every time. And it's a shame that those players were held back and were not compensated in the way that they deserve to be. Those would be the guys that should be getting paid $40 million a year. Because when they took the mound, they pretty much pitched the entire game. And those that dominated were winning every single one of those games that they were pitching or a very high percentage. That's when 20 wins meant something. That's when a pitcher that went out there and won 24 games really earned it you could talk about kill the win, and yes, kill the win because of the overuse of relief pitchers. If a starting pitcher had more control over their length in a game, if a starting pitcher that was pitching well was run out there consistently in the seventh inning and the eighth inning and the ninth inning, if it was up to the starting pitcher as far as how long they wanted to pitch, if teams weren't babying these pitchers with the thought that they could save these extra bullets later on in the season, I would understand why wins may have a little more value than it does. So I get it. I understand what has happened to the win stat. But the win stat has gone down in direct correlation with that of the complete game. There's no complete games in baseball anymore. There's only a handful you see over a course of the season. There aren't pitchers that pitch regularly nine innings. League leaders in complete games have two or three over the course of a full season, and that's considered a lot. So when you say kill the win, 
Now, I think the problem is the win has been killed within the same correlation that the complete game has been killed in baseball. And the eight-inning pitcher has been killed in baseball. And not only is the eight-inning pitcher having to trust a closer to whether they have it on a given night, but that seventh-inning pitcher, that seventh-inning pitcher may have to trust two relievers. That sixth-inning pitcher will have to trust probably at least three relievers, maybe more. And it's a problem. So we talk about the value of wins going down. The problem I have, we talk about the history of wins when it comes to pitchers. There was a lot more value before 1970. And those pitchers that won the 20-plus games between the decades of, what, the 1930s and the 1970s, pretty much all of them earned it. You know, the Sandy Koufaxes in the world are better or were better than any pitcher of this generation. And it's not Pedro Martinez's fault. It's not anybody from this generation's fault. It's the fact that the pitchers from the last 20 years have not been allowed to go nine, have not been allowed to finish their own games. So to finish this point about Wheeler and Corbin, as it applies to Bauer and Stroman, it's going to be interesting to see what type of value these pitchers build up over the course of this season. If Trevor Bauer and Marcus Stroman prove themselves to be six-inning or six-plus-inning pitchers, I don't know if you're a team looking for a two- or three-starter, you go out there and, and guarantee them four or five years. Listen, I know they got strong arms. I know they're going to deliver a lot of strikeouts. I know if they're healthy, they're going to deliver between 30 and 33 starts and give you a chance to win every single one of those games. But if you're not pitching more than six innings, I don't believe in $30 million for a starting pitcher anymore. And I think it's something that's changed. Like I said, I would pay Sandy Koufax $50 million a year. I would pay you know, Christy Mathewson or Pete Alexander or, you know, Old Haas Radborn or John Clarkson, you know, those guys that went out there and pitched nine innings 40, 50 times a year. I would give those pitchers $50 million a year. The six-inning pitcher, I don't know if I'm believing that that pitcher is worth the $30 million a year. Now, like I said, relievers are getting more. So maybe you could go within the $23 to $28 million range and have that kind of fluctuate depending on the talent of the pitcher. If Trevor Bauer for the Cincinnati Reds goes out there and he he has a big season, he leads the Reds to the playoffs, which I think the Reds are a very good team in the NL Central. I think they'll win that division. If Trevor Bauer works with Luis Castillo and Sonny Gray and you look at that team and you're like, wow, Bauer is the real ace here. He is the one that's the workhorse. He is the one that's carrying their staff. When they need a big game, when they need a big performance, they put the ball in Trevor Bauer's hand and he delivers. Then I'll, I'll change my mind. I'll say, hey, maybe the Reds or another team should go out there and give him, you know, five years and $150 million. But I wonder over the course of the next five years, even if you get the best of Trevor Bauer, just like I'm saying, the next five years, you get the best of Zach Wheeler. The next five years, because Patrick Corbin's deal started last year, you get the best of Patrick Corbin. Is it worth that amount of money in a contract? And like I said, I'm not saying, saying it from a boomer perspective, of, wow, these guys are so overpaid. 
I'm wondering exactly what constitutes a fair deal for a starting pitcher that is not pitching any more than six innings, that's not pitching nine innings. It's hard to say you're an ace if you can't be trusted to pitch into the eighth or ninth inning. And I understand the game has changed. I understand there's a dependence on the relievers like there never was before in Major League Baseball. But I have a hard time believing or paying somebody to be my ace that isn't going to touch the eighth inning over the course of an entire 162-game season, 30-plus starts, and however many starts you get in the playoffs. And you know, unless you're an ace or considered an absolute number one at the top of your game, you're not getting nine innings in a postseason. So those extra games that you're pitching in the playoffs, you're still depending on the bullpen. Last thing I wanted to bring up today, and as always, thank everybody for tuning in. This is the Passball Show, brought to you by JohnPLA.com, by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck, located in Scranton, Pennsylvania, by St. Aloysius Church and School, of course, in Jackson, New Jersey. Um, we're thinking about college basketball, and you know, listen, I'm never going to consider myself a, an NCAA basketball savant, but obviously a couple of things that stand out this year are the performance of some of the schools that don't necessarily – get thought of amongst the big powerhouses in basketball and college basketball. You think of teams like the schools like Dayton and Baylor and San Diego state. And I wonder what type of opportunity or chance they're going to get to win themselves a national championship as we get towards the end of this month. Now, obviously, they're all going to be seeded very high. There's a chance that I may have named three of the four top seeds in the upcoming, uh, you know, field of 64-plus bracket. Obviously, Kansas is number one. Gonzaga is number two. I think a lot of people would put, put their chips towards the center and saying those are kind of the two favorites to win the NCAA championship this year. But you got Dayton and Baylor and San Diego State, and I know Baylor's had a little bit of a hard time. They've lost a couple games. But you look at the likes of Kentucky, you know, Florida State, Seton Hall. Listen, those that follow college basketball may have a better idea and say, hey, this team looks better. This team's competition hasn't been that strong. And sometimes when you involve teams like the Daytons and the Baylors and the San Diego States, they have the opportunity to build up very good accumulative records based off of poor competition. You know, they're not playing the same schedule that Kentucky and Kansas and even the likes of some of the teams in the Big East. You know, Seton Hall has to play Villanova. You know, Louisville is in the Big Ten. And you got the likes of Duke, who's got to go up against Virginia and North Carolina. I know North Carolina isn't having a good year. But, you know, you, you understand that these teams have to go out there and play really good teams. They have to play other teams that are going to be in this tournament. Who's competing with the likes of Dayton and Baylor and San Diego State in our own conference? So I think because of that, you're going to get a little bit of disrespect when it comes to these teams, but they're going to have the opportunity to prove themselves. And, and I'm glad. I'm glad what stands out about a sport like college basketball is the fact that schools, and I'm not going to call them mid-majors, they are fairly you know well-known schools, just not prominent when it comes to the world of college basketball. They're not thought of amongst, you know, the UCLA's and the, the Dukes and the Kansas's and the Kentucky's and, the, you know, the Wake Forest's and, the, you know, whatever. 
teams you want to look at, Syracuse and Georgetown, and teams that have won you know multiple NCAA championships in college basketball. But they get themselves an opportunity. They play games. They have a tournament that, hey, if they really are that good and the cream rises to the top, maybe they're in the Elite Eight or the Final Four or playing for the championship. And obviously, when it comes to this time of year in March Madness, there's always going to be a lot of love for that school that nobody knows a lot about. Remember the likes of George Mason. Remember where Gonzaga came from. Gonzaga is considered a powerhouse in college basketball now, but wasn't always considered that. You know, when they first started making tournaments, you know, in the days of John Stockton, and then later on in the 90s when they became a little more relevant again and became consistent and became a winning school and a featured team in the field of 64 every year, you know, that darling reputation kind of went away. But it'll be interesting to see how things work out this year. We did speak a little bit about Trent Williams and the Washington Redskins. I think that's just an awful situation there. Like I said, you talk about a guy that's not playing in the NFL under contract, getting paid. Normally, you think that's a bad thing. This is the one exception to the rule. And I'm sorry, I can't even take an approach where I'm knocking Trent Williams because, yeah, listen, this guy was diagnosed a couple years ago by the Washington Redskins medical staff. And it turns out that he's on the field playing with a growth that actually turns out to be cancer. So the Washington Redskins, hopefully somebody lost their job over that. When you talk about medical malpractice, when you don't diagnose something like that, somebody's got to be fired. I'm sorry, that's the top of it. That doesn't mean that that person can never get a job again. doesn't mean they can be they should be blackballed from the industry. They need to get some counseling. They need to get themselves better. They need to learn a little more about the medical and the medicine that they practice. Because you cannot misdiagnose somebody that ends up having cancer. And hopefully that doctor that diagnosed Trent Williams is no longer with the team. But if I'm Trent Williams and I'm getting set to get my physical when the Redskins are looking to make sure I'm cleared so they could trade me, am I trusting anything that any doctors on the Washington Redskins are saying? I'm bringing my own doctor with me. And I don't care if it's a league thing. I don't care if it's a union thing. I'm bringing my doctor with me. You know, that doctor that properly diagnosed the cancerous growth I had in my in my head, I want that doctor with me to make sure that you're not screwing up. Talk about five goals in hockey. It is a big deal because you don't see it happen too often now, but it's something that's happened 47 times. And actually more than 47 times because six times somebody, I'm sorry, seven times somebody has scored six goals and one time somebody has scored seven goals. Yes, a lot of that happened early on in the inception of a more wide open NHL in you know the 19-teens and the 1920s. But we look at five goals and yes, it seems like it's a big deal because it doesn't happen so often, maybe a little bit overrated. We'll be back with you this week. This is the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com, by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck, located in Scranton, Pennsylvania, by St. Alwish's Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey, where uh, we'll be doing a show early Wednesday morning. It looks like Wednesday and Thursday this week. Uh, I do want to welcome everybody that is listening through Instagram now. 
We did pick up some more followers there. We picked up some more uh, subscribers on our YouTube channel. We're hoping to continue to grow the show. We're going to do one-minute clips on Instagram. Obviously, you can follow my YouTube videos uh, uh, you know, on my page, John Pielli. Uh, we got iTunes, Google Play. You can download my podcast, The Past Ball Show. Be back with you Wednesday. Enjoy your weekend. Enjoy your XFL, which, by the way, I am an XFL fan. See you Wednesday. God bless you. And as always, I'll see you on the other side.